I don't know if you're aware, but Christianity is the world's largest religion in a worldwide sense. And yet, despite that fact, um, since the 1960s in the West, at least, Christianity has been losing its influence dramatically. Whilst we would like to think that uh, we're right on top of everything, the truth is, maybe it was before, just before the 60s, but we have definitely been losing the battle against philosophies and ideas that are being propounded in this day and age. We live in a culture now which is pluralistic. In other words, I've written down what it means, a conditional system in which two or more states, groups, principles, sources of authority coexist. So people don't mind if you want to be religious, just keep it to yourself. Relativism, the belief that there is no absolute truth. There is no such thing as absolute truth. And yet, those who claim that want us to accept their absolute statement as correct. We live in a secular world where there is this, I know that we still have a state church in this country, but there is this continual trying to separate the secular and the sacred all the time, pushing the sacred out, out, out of society. And then you've got probably the thing that irritates me the most, political correctness. And although genuinely I believe that we should be more careful with our language because language has power, it has power. We know, we're told in scripture for ourselves as Christians, the tongue can build up, it can tear down. So we know that words have power. But political correctness for me is a a liberal prevailing type opinion in which we have to avoid causing any offence whatsoever. And what that seems to do is cause us to come to silence. And there are not many Christians that I haven't spoken to who when they are at work even in when they're out in public, in public spaces, they would be a little bit reticent to talk or mention Jesus just in case they offend someone and they get reported for it. There was a guy, I think his name was Andrew Murray, and he wrote a book. It's not the old Andrew Murray. I think there's a guy who was called Andrew Murray, wrote devotional stuff, This is an Andrew Murray, an academic, and he studied extensively um, the history of the church. And it's quite interesting that as society, which it has gone through cycles of doing, rejecting Christianity as a primary uh, contributor to society, the reality is that over time, whenever... Christianity has been pushed to the margins of society. Christianity has grown. So where you find churches under persecution and under threat, you very often see explosive growth. And yet, nevertheless, I don't believe it is right that speaking about, being free to talk about 
Christianity should be off the table. And when we do have opportunities to to, to speak about Christianity, we often are confronted with questions that so many of us would bulk at. How do I answer that? From simpler questions like, wouldn't we be better off without religion? How can you say there's only one true faith? Doesn't religion cause violence and wars? How can you take the Bible literally? How can you do that? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? And doesn't the Bible condone slavery? How could you follow a book where slavery is condoned and going in and killing people in order to cleanse the land? How could a loving God allow so much suffering in the world? That is probably one of the most fundamental questions that we need to learn to answer. But don't be confused. If you take the idea of good and evil out of the world, which is where we would probably go with that, trying to answer that question, if you don't believe in good and evil, as so many people don't seem to these days, the reality is those people have an even more difficult... uh, You know, they have it more difficult to explain where suffering comes from. And how could a loving God send people to hell? I do believe we need to be willing to engage with these questions and seek to answer them from a biblical position. But we shouldn't allow this to force our silence or our Christian belief and thinking out of the public arena. So how should we in this 21st century world operate how should we live within this challenging environment and so I want us to read this morning from Daniel chapter 1 I'm only going to read I'm probably going to read the first 10 verses well no I'll probably read the first I'll just go to verse 8 all right but we should read the whole chapter but time's going in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of uh, the, the king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, or Ashpen, yeah, Ashpenaz will say, his chief unit to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach and Azariah he called 
Abednego. Now, before I just read the final verse that I want to read out of this passage, I just want to say to you, the reason um, this next verse is there is because the king allotted to these folk who had been brought to Babylon, basically. He allotted to them food and wine from his um, store. And it says this about Daniel, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. I remember the stories of Daniel, and probably rather than their real names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I can remember at Sunday school being taught how to remember their names, shake the bed, make the bed, and off to bed you go, uh, with an idea that the, the, the rhyming in that would help you remember their names. And whereas in Sunday school I was taught that these people's lives showed the immense protective power of God, the way God protected Daniel in the lion's den, the way God protected Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace and how we could be, as children, we could trust God to protect us even when we were facing difficult circumstances, even if we were following Jesus and people didn't like that, we could trust God to protect us. And I want to say, I don't want to change that truth in any shape or form. That is true. I believe that. I believe we can look out and we can trust God with our lives. What will, what he wants to see in our lives will be achieved. Even with Nebuchadnezzar, he was really believing that he had won Jerusalem and he had taken Jehoiakim into his, basically under his, um, his reign and rule, but it actually says it was the Lord that gave him into his hands. And therefore, nothing could have happened in that situation unless God allowed it. And whilst we might struggle with that when we look around the world and we see some things that might happen and we say, well, if God's in control, why does that happen? The reality is God is in control. Even in the dark situations of life. So this opening chapter of Daniel is full of information that can help us set the scene. So as I've said... You know, Jehoiakim's fallen into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and they've taken a load of people off to to Babylon. Now, Jehoiakim, his father was Josiah, the reforming king, the one who reformed the religion within their own country. He drove out the idols from the high places and the low places from the temple and from every place. Not just very often you'll read of kings, they did what was right in the Lord's eyes, but they never quite finished the task, if you like. There was always a high place left here or a high place left here. But with 
Josiah, he cleaned the whole lot out. And so we read of Josiah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David. And he did not turn aside from the right to the left. He didn't turn aside. Before him, it says, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses. Nor did like any like him arise after So Jehoiakim has been born into a family that has huge credentials, huge credentials. He's lived in the atmosphere of a a father who has followed God without compromise. And yet, like his brother who preceded him, he was king only for a few months. Jehoiakim chooses a different way. Do you know what? Sometimes as Christian parents, we have children. We bring them up in the way of the Lord and we, we, we genuinely try to lead people in the right direction and they choose a different direction. And whilst we still love them and we still would rush to their defense and help them at any turn because they are our flesh and blood, the reality is... Just because you're a Christian parent doesn't mean that your children will also follow your faith. But I will tell you this, where they see parents who are faith-filled, you will know as a parent, and I'm coming from a place where not one of my children enter the doors of a church, and there are reasons to that. But when we speak to them, we know. We hear in their voice. We hear in the things that they say to us that there is something still at work within them that we pray for and we we lay hold of God for. When kids are young, they get brought up in the way of the Lord. But there comes a point, because of some of the things that I've already mentioned, that their faith comes under trial. And often, not always, but often, kids will go off and try their own thing for whatever period of time that will be. So he had seen his father doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and yet Jehoiakim was selfish and fully committed to his own sin, He put heavy tax burdens on people and built lavish palaces with forced labor. He he avidly practiced idol worship and the sins associated with it, including human sacrifice. God sent prophets to speak to him, Uriah and Jeremiah, to expose his sins and call him to stop. But he went to great lengths to silence them. He killed the one And he burnt the prophetic words that Jeremiah wrote down in his book. He burnt those because he did not want to take any notice of them. It is no wonder then that the sins of Manasseh, which is the reason God carries them off into Babylon, and despite the fact that Josiah had been so, so unbelievably single-minded in following God, somewhere in it all, the people had not deep down changed 
their position. And so they get carried off. Having besieged Jerusalem and God delivering him into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, Nebuchadnezzar then starts a process to subjugate and make submissive those whom he has defeated. He was quite a clever dude when you really look at what he tried to do. Because he didn't try to change with draconian ways and make everybody think in the same way in the land that he had just conquered. He handpicked, or he had handpicked a number of people who would be brought to his kingdom, his kingdom of Babylon, and placed in training there. People who would be influential going forward. Why do you think he wanted to teach them? Why do you think there was a three-year program with these particular young men? How old do you think these young men were when they went there? If you look at the fact that Daniel was still around when King Cyrus came to the throne, you would come to a conclusion that he, they must have been anywhere from 11 upwards, maybe 13 to 16 at best when they were carried off to Babylon. Why is that an interesting fact? Because they are the formative years of our lives. They're where we start to wrestle with all the big things in our lives, where we rebel against authority because we're moving from being a child, we're in adolescence, we're moving from being a child to being an adult. And so we test boundaries and we seek to try and find things out, we experiment, we do stuff. And so this was a very influential age to get hold of these people and to instill in them the ways of Babylon. And then what would have happened is, over time, they would have probably sent them back to be vassals. I don't know if vassals is the right word, but they would send them back as vassals to lead the country from which they've been taken in order to then influence that country and sort of bring everything under that level of power. And as we read through this first chapter, there are some things that take place for me, which demonstrate what is happening within society itself. So the first is that Nebuchadnezzar tried to change the values of people. His actions weren't arbitrary. They were deliberate. First thing he does is not only does he take people, but he takes vessels from the temple back to his home. And he places those vessels in the, tem- his, the temple of his God. Effectively, he is making a statement without saying a word that your God is not as big as my God. It's a sort of my dad's bigger than your dad approach. If your God had been as big as my God, then you wouldn't be in this situation. Because I've beaten you. My God has beaten you. He's beaten your God. And now, I am placing these things in the temple. He, and let's be honest, he didn't just take a small amount. When Cyrus 
becomes king and he decides to rebuild the temple and send people back and he decides then to give them back the vessels that he, was give, he had taken or that um, Nebuchadnezzar had taken. There's a whole list of them. It says this, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. And then he gives them back to the exiles to take into uh, back with them. They weren't just spoils of war. They became ways in which there was an underlying message. A subliminal message was being given to them. Your God is no God. And Babylon itself was a city, a massive city. It was the biggest city in the world of its time. And you entered by the gate of Ish, I think it's Ishtar or Ishtar. And that is a god in Babylon. Babylon was seen as a city of idols. It had a thousand different temples and all sorts in it. Different gods being worshipped. And the name Ishtar or Ishtar, I can't remember which it is, um, means light bearer. In other words, they saw themselves as paragoners of light and truth. And this is where Daniel and his companions come every one of those vessels that had been taken had been crafted if you remember that in the Old Testament it says about if you just take the tabernacle they took skilled craftsmen who worked with everything and did everything unto the Lord and the temple was no different These people did and built that temple in Jerusalem unto the Lord their God. They saw God as holy, sacred. And as Christians, we should ourselves be familiar with that concept of sacredness and holding God in a position of holiness. We pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means holy. Holy be thy name. It's a way not just of saying we're going to lift your name up, God, but what it is saying is this. It is saying very clearly and without fault, God, everything you are, everything you do, everything we are, everything we do, we're doing unto you. And so there is this move to change this and he begins to attack their values and the reason I think that this passage is interesting because Daniel even at the young age that he probably was it says he resolved that he would not defile himself he took the decision 
with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Unreal when you think about it. Very unreal, isn't it? I don't know why you wouldn't take the food or the wine, whether it was because it hadn't been killed in the way that they're supposed to and they might not have um, drained the blood out of meat and stuff or whether it was because that meat that was sacrificed or bits of it were offered to idols or the wine was offered to idols. I don't know. I just know that Daniel, whatever was going on, he was not going to allow himself, he did not want himself to be defiled The word defiled is an interesting word. It means stained. Deeply stained. He didn't want compromise in his life. But neither did he go out there and create a hullabaloo, for want of a better word. He didn't go and get bolshy and start shouting at people. He went... And he asked simply if he could be allowed not to partake. And then challenged the chief of eunuchs to basically um, test them in that. What is happening here is a slow erosion of culture or the attempts to do that. And then very quickly, identity. I mentioned that adolescence earlier, these young men were in the period we would call adolescence. It's a critical period for identity being formed. And so if he could get to them and educate them for three years, if he could get them to take on those things, then that would be the best thing he could do. And so he doesn't just go for education, however, does he? Because it says he changed their names, or the the chief of eunuchs changed their names. Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah became Shadrach, Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. There is absolutely... If you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, you will know that names, again, are just not arbitrary choices. They are chosen with purpose. Names describe something. So probably the most well-known would be, say, Jacob, which means deceiver, and then he gets renamed Israel, which means basically, I have struggled or wrestled with God and survived. Both those things are things that happened in his life. He robbed his brother Esau of his birthright and deceived his father. And he wrestled with an angel or a man. And he touched his, the man touched his hip. He said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You have Jesus himself. Joseph is told to name him Jesus. Mary is told that he will be the saviour of the world. In the Old Testament, we're told that there is one coming, Emmanuel, God with us, who will take away the sins of the world. John the Baptist declares, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Names are important. 
So what was going on here? Well, I'm just going to rush through these. So Daniel, the meaning of Daniel is God is my judge stroke king. Belteshazzar, however, means protect the king, Nebuchadnezzar, keeper of the hidden treasures of Bel, one of the gods of Babylon. It's associated with Baal, which is associated with Satan, demons, and the demonic world. Hananiah, Yahweh protects, or the grace of the Lord, changing Hananiah's name to Shadrach at the command of Aku, the Babylonian god of the moon. Again, changing their identity completely. Mishael, he that is strong, he that is the strong God, who is like God, to Meshach, who is what Aku is. Again, another God of the Babylonians. Azariah, God is my helper. Abednego, servant of Nebo, God of wisdom, servant of the shining fire. What do we learn from Daniel and his friends? I'm going to tell you that next week because my time has gone. But I will continue it next, next Sunday. But we learn something very, very powerful from them as they interact with that environment and their stand against um, what is happening. Let's just pray. Father God, everything in me wants to finish the sermon, but Father, I'm just going to leave it there. I, I just pray, Lord, that our hearts will be ready for that which is to come. Lord, help us as people to begin to open our eyes, Lord, to look and see what is going on around us. Help us to understand how it is affecting us. Help us to become people who pray and ask you, Father God, to strengthen us and give us courage to take that stand, Father God, that is required and how to do that. So Father, I would ask today that you would place in each and every one of us the power of faithfulness that we might stand. Lord, not that we are going to be going out there ranting and raving and shouting, but Father, just to learn to be faithful. So Father, I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.